0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the founder and producer of the podcast. Today is episode number 338. We are closing in on the end of our seventh year of podcasting, which is... Exciting, except that we really wish that we didn't have to keep podcasting about addiction, but as long as there is an addiction, we will continue to talk about it. Today we have an interview, but before I get to that, I want to remind you to please listen to the podcast and um, subscribe to it wherever you listen to it, and also subscribe to it on our YouTube channel. If you give us a good rating in both on both mediums, whether it's video or audio, then people can find us when they Google help for addiction, whether it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction. And if you've been listening to our podcast, you know that we are all about helping in any way that we can. Okay. So today we have an interview with a gentleman named Christian Jansen. He is 11 years sober. He has a nonprofit organization called The Most High Show, which focuses on recovery and sobriety. He and his wife, Leslie, are the founders of Most High Ministries, Christian is in long term sobriety and he felt the need to help others who struggle with addiction when he returned from a prayer retreat. So he asked his wife, Leslie, to join him in telling the stories of people and their journey of addiction and sobriety. Let's talk to Christian Jansen. Reverend Christian Jansen, I saw that you are a reverend. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Take us back. Tell us your story. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And what got you into drugs and or alcohol?
1: Oh, I'm going way back.
0: Yeah, way, way back. Way <laughs> back.
1: Yeah, uh, I grew up in a place called Bakersfield, California. I don't know if you're familiar with that. About a, I don't, don't know have, if
0: I've been there, but I've heard of it. I used to live in California, so yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's basically, you know, the armpit of California. Bakersfield. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's not much to do there. Um, and my, my, uh, my mother's an immigrant from Northern Africa, uh, French Algerian. My dad is a Canadian, and I don't know how the two of them met in Bakersfield, but that's where they met, and that's where uh, I came to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think growing up, you know, the classic kind of alcoholic addiction thing where there's, a, there's something I knew about the world. That um, everyone else wasn't didn't seem to know, right? Like, like there was an aspect to reality that I was aware of that no one else see this, and I'm thinking to myself, "You guys aren't seeing this, are you?" And so, uh, my dad was very hardworking. My mom was a super mom, kind of take care of the house, you know, cook and clean. She was uh, amazing cook. She is an amazing cook. Sound like they're dead, (laughs) (laughs) and. yeah, and then I think it's the it's the classic, you know. Um, there's a social aspect to addiction, right? Like, uh, so many of us. Uh, I'm not special or unique. I started in high school, really junior high, um, with the drinking, smoking weed, and it was fun. It was it was great. Like, you know, we would hang out, we would um, drink and. And smoke weed and eat mushrooms and run around and me and the friends. And um, and so that was really fun. <laughs> and once methamphetamines got introduced into my life, probably around sophomore year of high school, that's mm. when it started getting really dark. Mm. Um, but I think the, the main... How did thing- you
0: get introduced to meth? How did that happen?
1: Well... It's Bakersfield, so hmm. that's how. <laughs> that's
0: There's lots of drugs in Baker- Bakersfield because I'm not that familiar with it. So it's, oh, drug- yeah.
1: it's a little desert town, and uh, it's not so little anymore. But yeah, a lot of meth, a lot of meth out in that area. Hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't know. I think somebody was just in on it and was using it, and brought it in, and said, "Hey, try this," and I tried it. And up until that point, you know, my experience, the relationship I was creating with substances was pretty positive up to that point, right? Mm -hmm. You know, drinking and smoking weed and and eating mushrooms. And so it was a lot of fun, a lot of connection, a lot of sense of belonging. This kind of tribe was being created. Uh, And so my experience with substances was positive up until that point. So when someone was like, okay, now here's this thing. Uh, math try this my expectation was oh this is going to be more positive things and it wasn't it was that's when things got dark and cr- criminal behavior started and things like that
0: hmm. yeah and so what years did you use math like growing up not not calendar year your years oh,
1: yeah, yeah cuz you already know there's no way I know the calendar years. <laughs> um, shoot, I you know I would think from the year or from about the time I was thirteen um, to the time I was seventeen, eighteen. Wow. Yeah,
0: math at thirteen. That's yeah. yeah. Okay, and I'm then still- did you progress to anything beyond math, or was that kind of as hardcore as you got?
1: Well, in those years. Um, meth was the main thing, right? Okay. Uh, and so, you know, using that drug through high school and of course anything else, but mainly that. And then at 17 years old, I got kicked out of the house cause I was selling drugs. Uh, my mom had left at this point a couple of years before that, which is, you know, something that, um. Uh, it's gonna take years later in the story. It's a lot of therapy going in on that. But anyway, uh, so yeah, um, when I got kicked out, I was sent to from Bakersfield to this place called Santa Barbara, California. I'm sure you've heard of that. Yep. And so Santa Barbara didn't have a lot of meth, but they did have other drugs like cocaine and crack and uh, heroin. And, and things like that. And so, again, like through these years, like, um, you know, uh, the way I liked to use, at least in the later years, is, you know, I liked to have like this sense of, you get this term of functioning addict, right? Which is like kind of uh, oxymoronic. But in some ways, I think those of us who are were that way, get that. Because I like to have space between my using. I liked to kind of... Shift the way I felt, right? I like the feeling of kind of getting some clarity for a day or two and then going back into it and um, trying to balance it and keep it all together, you know, until eventually years later, I couldn't. But, um,
0: but you didn't get sick? Like you didn't go into withdraw if you went a couple of days without?
1: No, no. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, because mainly, you know, I'm doing uh, at this point in Santa Barbara, it's, it's more cocaine, right? I okay. mean, okay. I had, uh, I had done some, some heroin and stuff, but it, you know, this is like 90, you know, four ninety five, 95. So, you know, wasn't quite as, as in as it is now. Right. So, uh, yeah.
0: Okay. So you, your dad kicked you out basically because your mom had already left. Right. And so you're in Santa Barbara and what are you doing? Are you, were you working? Were you going to school? What were you doing?
1: I'm living with my grandparents. I was trying to go to school,
0: trying to go to college.
1: Yeah. Okay. College up there.
0: Okay. And did your grandparents know what you were doing?
1: To some degree, Um, you know, my grandparents, you know, again, immigrants from northern Africa. You know, they were that example of love and connection, a constant uh, example of that in my life. Right. My you know, the first time I'd ever done cocaine, I took it from my mom's stash, right?
0: Oh, so your mom did drugs as well?
1: Yeah, my parents were uh, cocaine users. They sold cocaine. Oh. Uh, so.
0: Well, then, why did your dad kick you out?
1: <laughs> yeah, Isn't that right. Kind
0: of like calling the kettle black.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Sorry, you know, you know, my editorial dad... comment. I'll shut up now.
1: <laughs> he tried to get uh, clean a couple times. You know, okay. you have some some like lengths of sobriety um.
0: we need to talk about a serious issue affecting our communities since 1999 over 932,000 lives have been lost due to drug overdose poisonings the numbers are staggering and it's time to act in March 2022 alone over 100,000 deaths were reported due to drug poisonings the heart-wrenching truth is that teen overdose deaths have doubled in just three years through education and the use of naloxone, we can make a difference. Naloxone is a life saving FDA approved medication that can rapidly reverse the effect of opioids, especially fentanyl, the leading cause of drug poisonings. Dan Zito is a national drug trends educator who provides impactful situational awareness presentations to law enforcement officials, healthcare practitioners, outreach specialists, and drug free coalitions. This is a call to action. Learn more about naloxone and be an ambassador to help others and save lives. For more information, reach out to Dan Zito. DanZito at gmail.com 727 214 4922. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today. And say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. The service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
1: You know, and of course, when my mom left, that kind of crumbled, you know. um,
0: Are they clean and sober now?
1: Yes. Well, you know, they're hippies, so they're clean and sober. But much healthier. Uh, My dad today is one of my best friends. You know, I talked to him. Uh, frequently um and he is definitely he did a lot of work on himself, you know, I think uh, having a marriage end after seventeen years was uh you know I'm grown now, right,
0: yeah,
1: you know, and my I've been sober almost twelve years at this point, right, so when I think back of this and I tell these stories it's it's different now when I look at it, right, yeah. like I see my dad as a man now, and then when I look at that. And the way both of them, I see them as humans now, right? Because I understand because I get it. Because you've
0: been through it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I think I've really discovered, what I really liked about these substances in this phase of my development, right, as an addict and as a human, I really enjoyed the chaos, number one. Hmm. Because I felt like when I got high, I was entering into reality. Like, hmm. things made sense when I was high, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and things were chaotic, and I enjoyed that, right? I enjoyed being in the eye of the storm. And it was when I wasn't, you know, that things didn't really quite make sense.
0: Okay. Okay. So why did you get clean and sober then? It sounds like it wasn't a bad experience
1: for you. (laughs) The first time um, I was uh, invited by my dad. He was one of his kind of clean phases to go to this thing called Promise Keepers, which was used to be this evangelical thing. They would go on tour around the country, and it was in Los Angeles Coliseum, big outdoor Coliseum. And you know I. At this point, you know, I was pretty miserable. I had done some, a little bit of jail time. I'd moved back into Bakersfield from Santa Barbara. Things weren't going too well. And my dad was like, we, you need to go to this thing, right? I i had been suicidal. I had tried to kill myself. I was going to therapy. It was not a good thing, right? But he's like, you gotta come to this thing. So, I remember going to this big convention. It's all men. right? It's the men. And Everyone starts at some point in the ceremony, everyone starts walking down there. Right. So you mm-hmm. think about this. This is, you know, what 20, 30,000 men gathered together in the Colosseum. And I don't know why they're going down there, but I just know, oh, I need to go down there. Like I was ready for some, something. I was ready for a change. Yep. Right. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Right. And so I went down there. And I had, depending on what circle you run with, I can use the words that makes you feel comfortable, right? I had a spiritual experience, right? I got saved. I was touched by the Lord. I was touched by an angel, right? Whatever words you want to use, something happened. There was a shift. And at that point, I lost desire for drugs and alcohol. Wow. Now, this is 1998. Yep. 12 years sober. So you know that this don't last for Right. But it lasted for a few years. Okay, uh, I just had lost it. I Had this spiritual experience. I got involved in this local church in Bakersfield called Set Free Ministries. Okay, and Set Free is like a biker. You, are you shaking your head? You know who they are?
0: Uh, no, but it, it just—I get the picture. <laughs> you see it
1: right with the vest and the big Chicano gangs, and they would—they would roll up, and we would do streets, um, outreaches, right. Huh. So not a very uh, that was my really main first church experience right okay. was this very active in the streets doing thing and so that lasted for a while during that time I met who is now my wife we moved back to we moved to Los Angeles and when I moved to Los Angeles I had at that point turned drinking past drinking age now and I thought to myself um, I can drink. Like, there's nothing wrong with drinking. I'm an adult and, you know, I identified as a Christian. So I was like, if Christians drink, it's fine. And so I started drinking. And it wasn't long when I started drinking, probably about a year later. Um, I got injured on the job. So I got put on some Vicodin and some friends had some cocaine and I started back into hard drugs. So you got to think like this point in time, like I'd had this spiritual experience. But I'd never done any of what I would call the soul work. Right. Right. Which right? Happens. There's
0: one thing to have the, the spiritual experience, but then you have to build upon that. And how are you going to then employ that and use that in your life going forward? And if you don't do that, I can see how it, the effect of it would kind of wear off. You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of what happened in that time is why, you know, you introduced me as a reverend, why I became a reverend, right? Because religion has has really great places, has holds really good spot in community and society. Um, I know it's hard to believe, but it does. It has a place. I agree. And, but when, what can happen is religion can also be used to reconstruct the ego. Which is what I believe happened with me. Hmm. I reconstructed this ego. I just create. I just. I was this person who who was on the inside, right, watching everything happen. Now I found this new framework that I could build my projection on. This make sense to you? Yep. Yep. It is. And so now I got this projection in this. So I wasn't really. I was doing the thing, right? But I had also created a whole new persona that really wasn't me. Right now, I—I was a very fundamental practice. We were taught you read, pray, uh, and you know you read three, you read Psalms, you read Proverb, you read another chapter out of the book, you pray on your knees, and you help people. And it's beans, rice, and Jesus Christ, and that's how we were taught. Right. So that fundamental practice in religion really gave me a framework. Right, but. Um, Again, not doing any of that real soul work, really understanding like why I was turning to drugs, the way I was turning to drugs, um, the ego reconstructed itself, and it came and it snuck back in, right.
0: Mm.
1: And I started drinking, and that led to um, getting put on pills for uh, injury at work, and then back to doing cocaine, and then now, now I'm in Los Angeles, right. In a band, and you know, Bakersfield's a small city compared to LA. And excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm doing cocaine and um, biking in pills, and that's again, things start getting dark again. Right? I, my wife has a child, um, my our first daughter is more. Uh, I have this pressure of like, I need to be a dad, I need to be a You know, at this point in time, my idea of what a dad is, is someone who brings home the bacon, a provider. So now I gotta provide. Right? So I took that weight very seriously. Now I took that weight so seriously, and then it was like, Well, oh my gosh, this is too much weight. (laughs) Yeah, I put this pressure on myself, and then I'm like, This is too much. I know what'll make this better. Let me get high. Right? And so that became the cycle. Um, for years until August 29, 2011 I carried and my ass back into rehab.
0: What happened to cause that in August of 2011? What changed?
1: Well, that's a good question. What changed?
0: Well, why did you decide to just handle it?
1: Go. Well, okay, so I used to tell this, you know, the first few years of my sobriety, I told this story as if I was like, uh, you know, had this white light moment. Right? So I was, I'm working in entertainment We moved to Los Angeles. I mean, uh, to Atlanta. I'm sorry. I'm working in the entertainment industry. And we moved to Atlanta. Okay. So I'm living in Atlanta, working in the entertainment industry. And, uh, the drug use is getting really heavy. And so my employer is saying to me, uh, something's going on too. Right. And we're going to have to let you go. So again, like being a provider, at this point, I got three kids now. Right. Mm-hmm. So being a provider is, is, you know, part of my ego. This is part of who I am. I'm the provider. Right. And, uh, I just work hard and play hard. That's all. Yeah. And when the playing hard started getting in the way, Right. I confessed, oh, I got a drug problem and a drinking problem. Right. It was what it was. Now I know what it was was me more manipulation on my end, Hmm. more me trying to convince them to take it easy on me. I need help. I used to tell that story like I had this moment of honesty and humility. (laughs) Now I know better. Right. (laughs) I was just trying to control the situation even more. Right. Yeah. So these guys, small entertainment company, um, you know, you might have heard about him. Uh, His name is Steve Harvey that I worked for. Okay. They decided to send me to rehab. They decided to keep my job open. They decided to pay my salary while I'm in rehab. They said, you know, we got you. We're going to catch you back. Right. So I'm in rehab and I have like this place I'm coming back to. I'm coming back. I know that I'm going to come home. Right? i know that i have a I know i have a job i know my my wife and my kids are there to support me everyone i'm in rehab with they don't have that right they don't know what they're going back out to right and so um that's what changed because i would have never compromised this role of being a provider right was so wrapped up in that mm-hmm. right no tr- For someone who had an experience, a spiritual experience, I had very little trust in God to do (laughs) much. Uh, And so that's when, all right, I'll do it. I'll I'll take this and I'll go to this thing. And it was in um, treatment. It's a uh, a place called Penfield Christian Homes. They do the steps, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and Uh, of course spiritual bible and stuff like that and so it was there when I reconnected in the spiritual walk it was there when I identified as an addict it was there when I did the first three steps in that treatment center that's when I realized oh there's something to me here and there is a way forward you know I had no clue up until this point I thought I just used too much drugs you know (laughs) Uh, I had no idea that there's that there's an actual thing happening here, and that I'm not alone. And that brotherhood that got created there in rehab and in that place was just like the brotherhood that got created when I was 12 years old and I was smoking and drinking and running the streets of Bakersfield. Yep. Internally, it's what it felt like. It felt like the same thing. Oh, I belong again. Right, and in that, what we're all—that's what we're all. Yeah,
0: that was your community.
1: Yeah, yeah. We all just want to belong, yep. and that's what I found. Um, and from there, it was really clear. I, you know, was thirty three years old at that point. Um, I was just done. I was ready to move on. You no, know, I. I did what they said. I got an aftercare plan. I went to. You worked
0: on your soul. That's what you had said before that you hadn't done. You worked on your soul. Well, well well done on 12 years of sobriety. I know that it's not, I haven't been through it, but I know it's not easy to stay that way. So well done.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: And you decided to help others. Tell us what you're doing now, you and your wife. What what are you doing now?
1: Yeah. So um, a few years, about five years into my recovery, uh, I felt like I wanted to do more. I wanted to align, you know, a sense of purpose with my talents, right? And so i had been in the entertainment industry for so long that I thought, well, how can I align where I where my purpose is and where I feel my passion is, which is to help people um, to really uh, connect with themselves and God, really. And um, and I was am in recovery, and I have the skill to tell stories. And I thought, what what? How can I meld these two together, right? And so we created this ministry called Most High Ministries. So if you Google us, you, would, you would, and if anyone knows us in the marketplace, they know us as Most High Media.
0: Okay. Right? I think that's the website, mosthighmedia.org.
1: That's it. Yeah. 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 I went there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and we, we created an app. I started with one documentary. Then we started telling stories. And we started sharing stories. So now um what's happened is we created this app we have over 13 documentaries
0: wow have that's awesome
1: television series um and we have over 150 recovery stories on that nice so it's a platform that anyone can access it's totally free no ads we don't collect data none of that it's like you know actual actual like we want to be helpful and uh, you can access this app you can access all this content. Is you, the app
0: called Most High Media?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: The app is called Most High Media. Awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, we, um, I did, a, I did my first documentary, which was, you know, I went back to Bakersfield and interviewed Pastor Mike, who was my first pastor to kind of document this street ministry that they're doing. And, you know, this guy gets, it's radically transformed in prison. So, I've never shown this film to anyone, you know, who believes or don't believe who don't like Mike and his story. Right. It's amazing. (laughs) That's the first story I told. And then it's just, it's all been following breadcrumbs. I didn't have a mat. I didn't have like a five-year plan. No. Actually, when I started the nonprofit, I went and interviewed a bunch of different people who ran real nonprofits. And they all said, Christian, make sure you raise your salary first. Right. Well, I took a loan in true alcoholic fashion and just went out and did it, you know? <laughs> uh, and three years into the down the road, I realized why they said raise your salary, because I'm the one that's running the machine.
0: That's right. And if anything happens to you, it doesn't happen, so.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. And I'd like to live indoors and yep. go with my family, so. Yep. Uh, I figured yep. that out later on. Um, But, yeah, and and it's been beautiful, and I get to meet so many people. I'm sure you understand this because you've you've been doing this for a while. You've probably met so many wonderful people that have enriched your life in just these 30-minute conversations.
0: Yep. Now, the documentaries, are they on your website, or how do people see them? Do you have a YouTube channel?
1: You you see them on the app.
0: On the app. Can you also see them? I don't always do stuff on my phone, but can I also see them, like, on my desktop?
1: You can watch it on dot org. Okay browser. You can also download the app on a Roku. You got a Roku. Okay. Or if you have an Apple TV, you can download the Most Media app and you can watch these documentaries there.
0: You know, I love that you do this and I, I love that you have a unique way of giving back. You know, a lot of people go around and they talk and they tell their story, but the fact that you're giving a platform for others to tell their story you know, it's it's huge. I mean, extremely well done, you and your wife, because she works with you on this, right?
1: Yeah, she just recently um, started her own job, you know? I think, you know, God, God bless us alcoholics. We're fun, you know, but we're also you know? So I think, uh, you know, I think that was a lot for a while, and she just had an opportunity to, you know, make some space, but... uh but yeah, she, I mean, she has been my greatest uh, cheerleader, greatest support through all this. I, I go, here's an idea. And she goes, oh yeah, you can do it. And then, you know, supports me through it. And
0: <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. what we do. That's, yeah. that's what we do. If you had one message to give our listeners, what would that be? You know, we figure you're talking to a lot of people who have loved ones, probably mostly people who have loved ones in addiction. What would you say to them?
1: Mm. Yeah. I would say take a pause. You know, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to sit down and close your eyes and breathe in and pay attention to that. It's okay. Like, Unless there's a literal tiger chasing you, you can take that pause, connect with who you are and your body. And I am confident that if you learn to do that, and if you take that time for yourself, that you reconnect to who you are and then you'll know what the next thing is to do.
0: Huge, brilliant, simple. Thank you so much.
1: Thank Reverend, you. yeah.
0: <laughs> Do people call you Reverend? Said Reverend Christian. I'm gonna call you that.
1: Yeah, uh, not too many. Uh, <laughs> kind of awkward, but uh, it is what I am, so I sh- I should embrace it.
0: There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for telling your story today. Thank you for being willing to share. Um, I know that a lot of what you said is going to resonate with people, so thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening today. Once again, Reverend Christian Jansen, sorry, Reverend Jansen's nonprofit and website and app is Most High Media. The website is mosthighmedia.org. And if you go to your Roku or to your smartphone, you can find the app, which is called Most High Media. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at
1: yahoo.com.